The escape of the Israelites as slaves from Pharaoh and his powerful greed and grip in Egypt is recorded in the Bible as a cornerstone for the faith of people of all times. It's meant to make us look at this story, remember it, and say, look at our God, he is so mighty. He can topple the mightiest of earthly empires. And he is so merciful that he remembers and has compassion on people who are underprivileged slaves and wouldn't even be in the history books if it weren't for his love and attention. That tenth plague, the Passover, that convinced Pharaoh to let the people leave Egypt, we, re- we retain that still today. It touches our lips and touches our hearts in the upgraded 2.0 version that we call Holy Communion, the New Covenant. God is saying, remember, as he beckons us to believe, remember how faithful I am, how forgiving I am. All of that would be different, and maybe not even here at all, if it hadn't been for one man who believed. Moses. It was hard for Moses to believe in what seemed like an impossible task, and for him as the impossible person. Moses had failed as, as previously he tried to be a leader in Egypt, and then he had failed being a leader in Israel, and, and they basically, Egypt and Israel together, exiled him. And he was a, a shepherd out in the wilderness who had lost his job, was looking for something better, and believed he was a failure. Why? Why would anyone, especially the most powerful person in the world, listen to him? It'd be like you going to negotiate with terrorists to release hostages when you have nothing to offer them, and oh, by the way, you're their worst enemy. But Moses believed. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the Bible, chapter 11, says this, By faith, Moses left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. And there was a lot to fear. To fear Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. But also Moses had to face fears in his own heart. We all have our fears. You're in a good spot if you know what your fears are and you can admit them. So what are they? Are your fears more based on mistakes from the past, concerns for the future, or how you're bumbling up what's going on in your life right now. Maybe it's about being trapped in a job or stuck in a relationship or forced to have to make a difficult decision. Maybe it's you're questioning whether your faith and the values and morals and beliefs from those faith, from faith, if if they're a fit for our diverse society today. Or maybe you're you're just facing the fact that you're more sinful and unworthy than you really want to be. See, with all of our fears, faith gives us freedom from fear. I want to show you how that works and how faith works and illustrate it going back to the story of Moses facing Pharaoh. Um, And so I want to take you in your Bibles. Um, I hope you have your Bibles or a Bible app. Open them up now and go to Exodus chapter 3. 
Um, I'm going to walk you through this. I'm not going to project these verses, so I want you to follow along and get used to paging through your Bibles. We have extra Bibles, or you're listen. I'll, I'll read it too. Um, but, but I want you to go there, Exodus chapter 3, because I'm going to show you how God works faith in people and understand how reluctant Moses was to take on this task that God was giving him and how God drew out of Moses faith in his heart that he didn't think he had and drew out of Moses' mouth words that Moses thought he couldn't speak. And if you know what Moses' name means, what I just said will be pretty spectacular to you. Moses' name, Moshe in the Hebrew, means drawn out. All right, go to Exodus chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. This is where God's in the burning bush, and he's talking to Moses now, and Moses is watching this bush burn, and he's wondering what's going on, and God speaks out of this bush, and he says, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And Moses responds, what? Huh? Who, me? That's my version. But he says, who am I? Verse 12, and God said, I will be with you. Now there's another excuse in there, some more exchange. Go to chapter 4, verse 1. This is another one of Moses' reluctancies, okay? So now Moses answered, What if the Israelites do not believe me or listen to me, and they say the Lord did not appear to you? God responds, he says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you the ability to do miracles. Nobody else in Israel can do this stuff, and when you do these miracles, they'll believe that you represent me, that you're from God. All right, that's what he says to Moses. Then Moses comes up with another excuse. So go to verse 10, chapter 4, verse 10. Oh, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. He seemed pretty good at coming up with quick excuses, but now he says he's slow of speech and tongue. Isn't that interesting? This is like the, this is like the person that the pastor comes to them and says, Hey, you have a pretty good voice. You should be a song leader. And they say, hey, buddy, listen, no, I'm not going to stand up there in the spotlight on stage. I, I can sing karaoke at my neighbor's house in, my gra- in their garage, but I, I ain't doing that standing on stage stuff. That's what Moses is saying right here. Uh, and here's God's response. The Lord said to him, verse 11, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now Go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. And then Moses realizes he's not working alone. Moses and God can do anything. That is how Moses could believe and how you can believe too. (laughs) And Pharaoh thought that he was picking a fight with a renegade shepherd. Boy, did he have things to learn, and he did. So today, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we have, we have Moses, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, now passing the torch to Paul, the greatest apostle in the New Testament. And now Paul teaches us what you just visualized and saw Moses act out and God with him. Now Paul instructs us with some of these verses about faith and about the Holy Spirit. 
Before we launch into this, I need to correct some errant thinking that's out there. And because you swim in these waters and breathe the air where this happens, this can infect you very easily. And so I want to clear this up for th- about what faith really is and what, what it isn't, really. So don't believe all those Facebook memes that talk about what faith is or isn't. Faith is not dreaming. Dreaming is imagination, sometimes gone wild, and it's not real, but faith is not imaginary. Faith is real, and it's based on real promises. Faith is not positive thinking. It's not putting on a happy face and convincing yourself everything's going to be okay. Because guess what? Eventually, you have to deal with the broken down washing machine. Eventually, the kids all get sick at the same time. Eventually, you lose your job or your health. And it's not okay. Faith can get you through that, though, not positive thinking. Faith is not performing religious rituals or rules. Um, It's not about a performance of what your church expects of you. That's not faith. Because even our best practices, the Bible says, aren't enough to earn a ticket into God's favor. Faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural working of the Holy Spirit. It's a miracle beyond scientific understanding or sociological patterns. Faith is a gift of God through the Holy Spirit. So now that's what Paul's writing about here, and he gets going in in, in verse 1. Now about gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Remember when you were a kid at Christmas time, and did you hang out with the cousins at all, or maybe your brothers and sisters? You know, and you're all little tykes, and before Christmas you're comparing with each other, like, oh, I want this for Christmas, and I want this. And then after Christmas you compare the load. Well, I got, look what I got. I got this, and I got this, and maybe you didn't get this, you know, with your siblings, your cousins, and maybe you're glad, and maybe you're sad, depending on what you got. You're comparing, right? And then we still do that as adults, as we stand around the water cooler at work and compare commissions and bonuses and salaries. We, We just... That's what people do. We compare. The Corinthians were doing this. They were comparing themselves with each other. Oh, I have this gift. Oh, I have that gift. Oh, I give this much to church. Oh, I give that much to church. Oh, I attend church this often. Oh, I go this often. And they were looking down and looking up and comparing with each other. And Paul says, stop. And he calls them two things. First of all, it's important. He calls them brothers and sisters. This is a pastor's heart for his people and and the leadership of love of the Apostle Paul. He calls them brothers and sisters because he's convinced that even though they're engaging in this bad behavior, they hadn't sold their faith out. They hadn't given up on God. They hadn't walked three blocks down the street and joined the Greek temple there where they worship the gods and the goddesses. They, they hadn't done any of that. They're still his Christian family. They haven't separated themselves from God because of their bickering and their pride. But he also calls them uninformed. See, they are behaving badly because they're operating 
with some gap in information. They're operating with some of their own assumptions and their default thinking, which isn't true and needs to be corrected and changed, but they don't know what that correction, that change, that upgrade, they don't know what it is. And so Paul presses the pause button and then presses the back button and takes them back to some elementary basic teachings about the Holy Spirit that are important, that make a difference, that really matter. And now that's what he's talking about as we get into the teaching of the Holy Spirit. This stuff really matters. It's important. It does more than keep you from arguing. It makes a big difference in your life. So, verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, that's an unbeliever, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. So Paul says, before I talk about all the diversity of gifts and how you're all different and if there's anything better or not, before I talk about diversity, I want to talk about unity. I want to talk about how you are all the same, how you came from the same place. And then we'll get to how you're the same in your faith as believers. And so Paul appeals to the, to the unity and says, you were pagans. Unchurched, unbelieving pagans who do not have a beneficial relationship with God. Now, here's the deal. Someone who's an unbeliever, we, we use the term unbeliever for them. Maybe we shouldn't use that term. You know why? Because everybody believes in something. Everybody believes in something. It's just a matter of what you believe in. Pagans don't believe in God, but they do believe in a lot of other stuff. And, and Paul has a term for that other stuff. Idols. He said, pagans who are unbelievers who don't believe in God are led astray by idols. And now here's the deal. We all have a little bit of a pagan inside all of us, still calling to us, still wanting us to behave in a way that doesn't believe in God. Even when we're Christian, it doesn't mean we're a pagan, but we have this influence in us. So that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, You're, you all are behaving like a bunch of pagans that's influencing you. He calls them brothers and sisters. They're still Christians, but, but this influence. So here's the problem. I'm going to read you three verses from the Old Testament when, when there were like, real idols that sat on fireplace mantles and kind of pot-bellied and, right, they, you can make them out of gold or wood or they were big or they were small. You could carry them around, all right? Here's what some of the prophets in the Old Testament said about idols. Look at this. Habakkuk 2, verse 18. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. This is what the prophet Habakkuk is saying. He's saying, listen, people, when you, as the craftsman dude, use your mind and your hands to create something that you say is a god, if that's created by your mind, then it has no ideas bigger than your own mind. And if it's created by your hands, it can do nothing better than your own hands can do. You're worshiping an image of yourself. That's the crazy thing about idols. Here's another problem. Isaiah 46. 
They lift it to their shoulders, talking about an idol here, and carry it. They set it up in its place, and there it stands. From that spot, it cannot move. Even though someone cries out to it, it cannot answer, it cannot save them from their troubles. <laughs> Manufactured idols that people make are not living things. They can't hear, they can't speak, they can't move, they cannot save. Now, these kind of idols, the images, are not living things, but it is possible for an idol to be a person. Uh, an example is a mother can idolize her children. Uh, there, there are, a, a, a young boy can idolize a sports star. That's a living thing, but actually not, because it's not the sports star who is the idol. It's not the children who are evil little carved image idols. It's the idealization of them on the part of the person who's worshiping them. So even if there's a living being involved, your idol is not that living being. It's your, it's your idea of what they can do, and that's a dead idea. That, that can't move and it's not a living thing. Get that? That's like, a, that's like a guy watching a football game screaming at the TV, catch the ball, catch the ball, right? He's talking to his team, and oh, what does that do? Are they going to jump out of the TV and say, oh, thanks, coach? Right? He's acting like it's this living thing and it, it doesn't do any good. Only in his own mind. And that's how idols want you to think. Football's starting soon, I had to say that. Gary, I don't think that happens in baseball games, does it? Third problem with idols. This is, this is almost funny, okay? Prophets work kind of that way sometimes. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. Their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. <laughs> Prophets saying, if you have an idol, it's like a scarecrow. It's like asking a scarecrow to go down to the corner to the red box and pick you up a movie and bring it back so you can watch it that evening. No. He's saying to, they can do no harm. You know, the scarecrow's not going to mess that errand up. He's not going to get you the wrong movie because he can't walk there. So he can't do any harm and he can't do any good. There, that's why Paul calls idols mute. It's like pressing the mute button on your remote. Nothing comes out. You can't hear it. Nothing. Idols do nothing. So, why do people have idols if they can do nothing, you ask? I'm glad you asked that. I'm going to answer that on one condition, okay? that you, along with me, admit that you have idols. Say yes. yes. Thank you. All right. Now, an idol is anything other than God that you turn to for approval, to, to put you at peace, to allow you to control things, for you to be happy. 
anything you turn to for that other than God is an idol. Remember, I, asked, I talked there about fears before? If you are able to put your finger on what you are most afraid of in your life right now, I guarantee you, you're going to find an idol. Where we have the most restlessness, the most fear that, that we will lose something, or we have the most agitation that we have to defend something, it's so important to us. At the heart of that restlessness and agitation and frustration is an idol that's not doing for us what we want it to do for us that only God can do. People can be our idols. Things can be our idols. Opinions can be our idols. Possessions can be our idols. Ideas can, and dreams can be our idols. There's, there's a lot of different ones. Good things can be our idols. doesn't make them bad. Like I said before, kids can be idols. A spouse can be an idol. Things that God created, sex can be an idol. God created it, it's, it's a blessing, but we can turn it into some, when we idolize it, then it's bad. So that, this is what this is saying. Your greatest enemy is, is not the idols, but it's your own heart with your will and your worship that gives the idols what they want, but they don't give you back what they promise. So you ask, okay, I have idols. How do I get rid of those buggers? How do I get rid of my idols? That's a very good question. How do I get rid of my idols? I'll tell you what you cannot do. You cannot manage your idols. You cannot create a, a comfortable usage agreement with whatever is capturing in you what only is reserved for God. You cannot manage your idols. It will end up bad. You cannot put your idol in this pocket and Jesus in this pocket and say, I, I, I want a little bit of both. Remember when Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money? There's an example. Jesus says you can't have both. Choose one. Jesus will not be 50% of your Lord, and he will not take second place in your heart. He, he wants to be your only Lord and, and 100% of your love and worship that he deserves. Here's how you deal with idols. We must root out and replace our idols. We cannot live with them. We cannot manage them. They must be gone. And that surgery for a believer, that surgery that kills our idols, kills us too. But our idols stay dead. And we rise to new life. That's the promise of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says so often in the Gospels, if you want to follow me, you must... Deny yourself, you must die, you must pick up your cross and follow me. All of those involve death. And this is what he's talking about. He's saying, I want you to root out and replace your idols and you go under surgery that's going to kill you and it's going to hurt and you're going to feel pain because you want to latch on to that security 
that's a false security that you've been latching onto, but I'm going to replace it for you. And the only thing you can replace an idol with that takes care of it for good is Jesus. Now here's some good news I have for you. Jesus, because he loves you like God loved the Israelites when he rescued them, Jesus doesn't ask you to first just clean up your life a little bit. He doesn't ask you, could you take care of that idol first and then I will come and make my home with you. As a matter of fact, Jesus did all the hard work already and gives it to you as a gift. Jesus performed that idol-killing surgery when he went to the cross for you and when he died. And when he died, the book of Romans says, according to your baptism, when Jesus died, you died too. And your idols died too. And then when Jesus rose, you rose with him, but your idols stayed dead. They cannot curse you. They cannot control you. They cannot tell you what to do. They cannot make life miserable for you when you walk away from them. Because Jesus owns them, he controls them, and he curses them forever. Remember when Paul said in these verses that that pagans were led away to worthless idols. Um, If you look at Mark, in the book of Mark, chapter 14, verse 44, there it talks about Jesus being led away. And this is what's interesting. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is led away. He's he's bound with ropes and taken away to trial and eventually crucifixion. And who is he led away by? He is led away by Judas in this verse. Judas, who himself was led away to an idol. Judas loved money so much he sold Jesus. He was led away by religious leaders who liked their position and their pomp so much and their own way of religion and followed idols. Jesus was led away by those who were led away to idols. And he gave himself up for them, to them, and to you too, to you and me as we're led away. He's our Savior. Acts chapter 8, verse 32, is a story about the Ethiopian eunuch and, and the Apostle Philip approaching him. And, and the, the eunuch was reading this verse from Isaiah. It's Acts 8, verse 32. Now, Jesus was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Before, before the people who shouted, Jesus, be cursed! Jesus, be crucified. As he stood in front of those people, the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish court, the public mob, the Roman soldiers with their fists and their clubs and their whips, the Bible says Jesus was silent. Jesus shouted out nothing at them, though he could have. No words of revenge, no words of curse, no calling from his Father to pronounce damnation upon those who were mistreating him, none of it, so that he would go on suffering in silence like a lamb to be sacrificed for you. And instead of needing to speak, Jesus listened. He zipped it, and he listened. 
to the voice of his Father. You are my Son. With you I am well pleased. There is no other way. Go, I am sending you to the cross. But after the cross there is glory for you, my son, and I will raise you from the dead and you will live forever in glory with me. Now go and suffer and die for the sins of the world. Go and be silent, my son. For those words of cursing and vulgarity that come out of the mouths even of my people. Go and be silent for the words of complaining and grumbling that come out of even my people. Go and be silent for the, for the words of prayer and praise and thanksgiving that should come out of my people. And curse those sins so that those sins do not curse them. And that is how Jesus became your Lord. Final verse, verse 3. No one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Two things there. Faith is listening. And it's listening to the Spirit of God, not to what your idols are telling you. That's a bunch of lies. And they'll keep talking and they'll keep trying to convince you, but those are lies. Don't listen to them. And they're even in your heart, and there's a part of your heart that agrees with your idols. Don't listen to your heart. Listen to the Holy Spirit. And do you know where you can hear the Holy Spirit? I hear this Holy Spirit all the time. You heard him today. In the Word of God, that's where we hear the Holy Spirit. Anything else? Eh, I don't know. You might be hearing voices in your head. I don't know for sure or not if it's the Holy Spirit. But I can tell you, when you read or remember or memorize or, or listen to Christian music or read your Bible in the mornings, you're listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. You're listening to God. And when God speaks, he creates faith, like the smell of popcorn makes you want to eat it. When God speaks, so listen to God the Holy Spirit. Read your Bibles, memorize scripture verses, have devotions with each other as a Christian couple, teach them to your kids, and you're listening like Jesus was doing, and he could even go all the way to the cross because he was listening. Be here on Sundays, you're listening now. Watch this on video. You'll listen then. Faith is listening. Zip it and listen first. Then after you've listened, then faith is speaking by the Spirit of God. Speaking the words you've heard from God. If you want to be able to explain your faith to your friends, if you want to be able to invite your friends to church with confidence, if you want to be able to change their lives with what has changed your life, then first listen to God the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and then speak those very words. And they'll be very powerful as you tell others, Jesus is Lord. And the Holy Spirit promises you like God promises Moses, I'll be with you. I will give you the very words that you will speak. And you will be my mouthpiece as Moses was. 
How many of you have watched the Olympics so far? Raise your hand. Seen any Olympics? Opening ceremonies? Some of the competition that started? Oh man, it just amazed me. I was watching uh, women's beach volleyball. No, it was a volleyball in the, in the gymnasium. It was indoor volleyball, but they're so tall. And so just the sinews of their muscles. And I mean, these are world-class athletes and how high they can jump and, and spike that ball. And I'd try to jump up and pull a hamstring. Um, amazing athletes, all of them, from all nations, in all the sports, both genders, just amazing athletes. Why? A lot of different reasons. One of them is this. They have a coach. Some of them individually have a coach. Some of them as a small group or a team. They have a coach. And the coach is speaking to them and teaching them and they're listening and they're open and they're, 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 they're obedient to the coach. And he's going to encourage them when they're discouraged and don't want to train. And he's going to speak positively to them. And he might even rebuke them once in a while for something they're doing wrong. And at the end of it all, they appear in the World Olympics because they have been coachable. The Holy Spirit is your coach. He will encourage you in times of discouragement. Listen to him. He will help you get to the next level when you don't think you can and draw out from you faith like he drew out from Moses who didn't think he could believe. He will give you words, the right words, not always powerful, sometimes gentle, sometimes stammered a little bit, but the right words that you need to say and that others need to hear. And you will be a world-class believer. Amen.